Clemson LSU National Championship coming on Monday, Monday the 13th, 8 Eastern. It'll either be the third title for Clemson in the last four years, first title for LSU in 12 years since the 2007 season for LSU. Andrew Dowdy back on the High Motor Podcast. Thanks for dropping by. And before we get to that national championship in New Orleans on Monday, one final episode of the show, and this one's going to be a little bit different. For those who don't want to hear me talk, this is your pod. This is absolutely your pod. After I intro this, I'm not going to talk again for the remainder of the podcast. On Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, ESPN had their pre-national championship teleconference with Kirk Herbstreit, Chris Fowler. They're on the call for the sixth time together. And I always really appreciate the opportunity to partake in these calls, the invitations to these calls, because even though I've been extremely lucky with this show to grab Herb Street for extended periods a few times on this show and talk to him one-on-one for 12, 15, 20 minutes, these are still two two giants in college football media that just aren't available all that often. So my idea for this podcast, let's just post the entire call. ESPN gave me the go-ahead to do it, much thanks to their college football PR guy, Derek Volner. He agreed to let me do it, and Usually in these calls, how they work, I'll ask a question or two or three. I couldn't this time because the baby was a little bit crabby, but but I still had the entire call. I chopped out the moderator, cleaned it up. Uh, the, the moderator will come on and say who's next, who's on deck, all that kind of stuff. Got rid of that. And on this call, Herb Street and Fowler, they, they cover a ton of ground. National Championship stuff, Clemson LSU stuff, obviously. Uh, Herb Street had some great comments on... Dabble Sweeney, motivational style. He actually told a brief story of how Urban Meyer created fake quotes just out of thin air while at Ohio State and then attributed them to random media people to motivate his team. They also talked a little bit about Matt Rule's departure, how they pay more attention to recruiting rankings, uh, playoff expansion, tons and tons of good stuff in here. Again, I've cleaned it up significantly. I left those questions in for context. Uh, I hope that you enjoy a look at these calls from start to finish. And then I'll be back on Tuesday or Wednesday of next week after the national championship to put a bow on that game and early look ahead to next year. Play some you're wrong a lot more. Then I also have a few guests scheduled out for the next few weeks after that. A lot of good stuff coming. Thanks for dropping by the High Motor Podcast this week. Enjoy the national championship on Monday. Certainly, Kirk and me are speaking for Maria Taylor, Tom Rinaldi, our entire crew. Very pumped up about this this broadcast uh, next Monday. Strange to have this much time between the semi and the final. Gives us lots of time to prepare and, I guess, rebuild the momentum off of the Clemson-Ohio State game, which was our privilege to call, and then the Rose Bowl, which was also really compelling. So we felt great about last week. Very proud of the production. All the ingredients are there for the final in New Orleans. There's a ton of anticipation that crosses over out of the realm of just hardcore CFB fans, which is how you want it. Um, everybody knows about what Clemson's done, 29 straight, LSU, uh, the unstoppable force playing down there in their backyard, Burrow and Lawrence, there's a ton of marquee value. If you look at the future, possibly the next two number one overall picks, certainly among the top two quarterbacks taken. So we're excited about all that. Um, a lot of great memories from championship games in New Orleans and, and looking for a real juiced up dome and a, and a game that, if possible, surpasses the hype the way that Ohio State and Clemson did. Yeah, I'll just add to it, you know, this is an exciting time of the year for, for everybody who follows the sport year-round. And, you know, we got, we got a great matchup in a great town where there's going to be a lot of excitement. 
uh, all weekend leading up to the game. And uh, we can't wait to get down there and be a part of that. And uh, hopefully we have a really competitive game on Monday night. And we look forward to uh, to being there and, and uh, drawing on all the emotion and storylines and everything that we can get into uh, uh, on Monday. So looking forward to it. So first about the all, uh, what effect does LSU being at the top of college football have on the sport? Great. It's awesome. They, they have a passionate fan base. They've got a great um, local uh, venue. Where, you know, when, when Baton Rouge is cranked up about college football, it's one of those places that uh, that's great for the sport. You know, I think this is at a level, if they can close this off on Monday night, this is a historical year for them. But anytime you can throw LSU and, and their fan base up into the top five in the country, in this case, up at the top of the country, I, I think it, it creates a lot of buzz and definitely creates a lot of excitement, not just throughout the, uh, the SEC, but throughout the country. Well, it, I think uh, it's fresh blood. The playoff has frankly needed different teams. Uh, you know, Clemson's been the kingpin. I mean, in a short time, they've gone from the underdog team that's trying to chase down Bama to being sitting at the top. And LSU comes in as although the, the underdog or favorite in this game, they're still the, the challenger for the title. But I think that LSU has obviously a rich history. Uh, I, I was there all three times they, they played you know, for the championship in the Superdome before. And it's 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 cyclical. LSU's always going to be a championship contender. I think this particular group, the dynamic offense, is what sets it apart. I'm not sure if either Kirk or I have seen an offense quite this explosive in, in our years of covering college football. And, and I think that's a dimension that LSU teams haven't had in the past. But yeah, I, I think that you you need to have fresh blood in the playoff, different contending teams. And this year, uh, for the first time, that's LSU. Chris, you referenced it earlier about how strange it is to uh, for this wait. What do you think about this, the 16 days between uh, the semis and the finals? And is it good for good for uh, the college football playoffs? Well, it's a fluke of the schedule. First of all, people need to understand that. It's not going to be the regular thing. This has been a weird year. It's a two-by year. Things are pushed back later. And I think that's why we're getting this, this long gap between the semis and the finals. If you ask Clemson's players, they're probably glad to have it. I think of the teams that had to play the week after those two semifinals, especially the one we saw in Arizona. That was a bloodbath. Super physical game. Kirk and I both commented the number of players on both sides that went out of the game, came back in the game, were being treated, getting deep. If they had to come back on, on seven days, it would have been, I think, really tough throw in cross-country travel into that to get back home after the game. I think it's nice to have a recovery period. Ideally, for momentum and fan interest, you wouldn't want it to be 16 days. Like I said before, uh, we will be prepared because that's a lot of time to get ready for two teams we already know. But ideally, it'd be a little closer than, than, than that, I think, to, to settle things. I think it is most years. Which quarterback would you give the advantage to heading into this game, however small, if they had it? I would probably... You know, I, I expect to see potentially a game where which quarterback has the ball last uh, type of game. So I, you know, I, I don't want to make it look like one has a a, a, uh, a clear advantage. Like you said, I, I would give us probably a slight edge to to Joe Burrow just because of the, how consistent their offense has been this year. Um, 
Auburn is about the only team that came up with a wrinkle with Kevin Steele where he played a 3-1-7 for, for most of the game, three D linemen, a linebacker, and seven defensive backs to create some doubt and to create a lot of different looks and disguising. And and uh, he really feels that if you give him the same look or he knows what you're in, you have you have no shot of, of slowing him down. So and I don't I don't know if I've in my years of playing the game and covering the game, probably over thirty years, I've ever seen a quarterback executing at the level of Joe Burrow in a system like this. So love both these guys. I, I think it's crazy to think the potential of first pick this year in the draft, Joe Bad for Joe going to the Bengals, and then next year the first pick probably Trevor Lawrence. Um so you got you got potentially the first two picks overall in the next two drafts going head to head. I don't know if we've ever had uh, two quarterbacks in a championship game that you could say that about. So they're both outstanding, but just because of the way Joe's executed with his teammates in this new offense, I think you've got to give them give him a slight head going in. That's what's so interesting, you know, Burrow in, in every category you think about. You know, how is he um, when he's pressured? He's the best. How is he against ranked teams? He's the best in the red zone, in the fourth quarter, against the Blitz. I mean, Lawrence is brilliant in all those categories, too. Burrow, it, it's hard to imagine a guy having a season like this. But I, I said last week, you know, in, in Arizona, I don't know if there's anybody you, you trust or, or not want to bet against from Lawrence. Never having lost a game since high school, just the toughness that he showed against Ohio State when he got pissed off after getting hit in the head and really played much better after that, the 94-yard drive a 67-yard run. He made plays in that game that are going to live in the history of the sport. Showed me a lot. I know Kirk feels the same way. It's really, really splitting hairs um, when you try, to, you try to say, okay, who's performed better versus who's going to shine when the light comes on. Trevor has a lot of championship experience, man, and I think that counts for something. Uh, not that Joe won't, won't deliver, but um, tremendous pressure on both of them to, to key their offense. Like, I can't wait to see it unfold. Though. It's, it's really it's tough to choose, though. That's why you asked the question, I know. Hey, fellas. Uh, question for both of you, because I cover this from a business perspective. If I can ask you both to zoom out a little bit, it's year six of the CFP format, and obviously you still have critics out there who say they should make it an eight-game playoff. Uh, what do you say to that? If we look at six years, obviously Bama and Clemson have been so dominant. Uh, what do you say to those people who say the format still hasn't gotten it right? Well, it's in the eye of the beholder. I think that if you're going to expand, you're doing so for the objectives of inclusion and opportunity. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to include every conference champion in the Power Five and add three large teams, that's fine. Are you going to are you going to bring fresh blood uh, to the podium to, to accept the trophy? I don't think so. I don't think an expansion to eight is going to produce a much different bracket of four. You might have an upset. There's a possibility of that. That's exciting in sports. Less likely to happen in football than basketball. So I think you're going to have the same teams. I mean, if you expanded to eight, Dabo said this before, imagine Clemson or Alabama not being in every year. I mean, you know, you're going to have a lot of the same teams. And I think if you play the quarterfinal round at campus sites, the higher seed is going to be solid favorite most years. You can't just have 16 games, in my opinion. You've got to eliminate something, either a regular season game or the conference championship games, if you're going to add an additional round of the playoffs. But I do think it'll probably happen. Um, I think that the four has worked pretty well, though. I really do. Yeah, I, I like. I mean, we you know we lived in that world of two, 
for a long time and everybody talked about the potential of a playoff and what that would mean for the sport when we got to four. And I think the one drawback that I've recognized is how when we had the the BCS, I didn't I didn't really feel that if you didn't make it in the BCS, there wasn't this feeling of uh, dejection. You know, like the fans get frustrated, the the media that covers the team. It's almost a disappointing year if your goal is to make it to the playoff and you don't make it, and you still have a a ten win season. It's almost I think created like for me, I'm a big college basketball fan. You know, you watch March Madness, and then there's also the NIT tournament. And the NIT tournament is kind of a, an afterthought for, for a lot of fans. And I almost feel like this four has gotten to the point where it's like the four teams made it to the tournament and everybody else, they're in the NIT tournament. I mean, that, that's some, I think we're raising a generation of fans that, that feel that way. And to me, that's, I don't know what the answer to fix that. I don't, I don't know if going to eight is going to change that. It might make it even worse. So that's, that's my only concern for the sport, for the well-being of the sport. Cause I, you know, that puts the, think about that. You, you have over a hundred teams that are playing college football and you, know, you have four teams that get into the playoff and everybody else is looked at as a failure. And, and that's, that's, that's not really uh, realistic or, or right. So, uh, I think it's inevitable we'll eventually get to eight. I think how you handle the conference championships um, is the tricky part. Do you eliminate them? Do you keep them? Do you go back down to 11 regular season games, keep the conference championship games? Um, do you do home games for the first round? How do you incorporate the bowl games? What's the Rose Bowl going to do? So, you know, I think there's a, other than just saying we need to go to eight, there's just, there's a lot of hurdles you have to, overcome in, in order to be able to to do that yeah i think if you value the bowl system expansion would would, would, would help kill it I, I just think it's very much against the bowl system unless you involve the bowls as quarterfinals and really manipulate the schedule which backs you up in the nfl playoff territory and causes all kinds of problems so uh, like i said kirk said I, the bowls which i think are a precious part of the history of the sport would be extremely devalued if you expanded it and had a, a quarterfinal stage of playoff games that were not part of the bowl system. If you look back at the history of the uh, college football playoff, however brief it is, the Southern teams have been dominant, both in the number of teams earning playoff spots as well as winning national titles. Is that simply attributable to regional differences or the popularity of college football in the South, or are there other factors at play here? Population based for the talent. Pretty simple. I mean, you look at the top of the recruiting rankings. I think the personnel link to performance is stronger than ever in the sport. And that's why I think both of us pay more attention to recruiting than we used to. But uh, it's, it's simply the concentration of, of youth football, high school football is so important. So emphasize the pool of players is so large and the commitment of resources, the programs down there, um, other than a few exceptions outside of the South. Ohio State, Notre Dame, Michigan, Penn State, you can make a case, and a few other teams, Oklahoma and so on. But I, it's, it's by and large just more resources, more players down there, and, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, and I don't think that's like a subjective analysis. Uh, it's not just recruiting. I, I think, you know, if you go back over the last three years, five years, eight years, ten years, and you look at what the NFL, unless maybe they have a, a SEC bias too, I don't know. But 
if you if you look at the people that are drafted, um, it's pretty clear, with the exception of Ohio State, Chris has talked about schools like potentially Notre Dame, Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at teams from the South who are churning out NFL players at a pretty high rate. Um, even the ACC, if you go back five, seven years, is under they're perceived to be down right now with teams like Florida State and Miami and Virginia Tech down. Um, but I think they still have great, great individual talent that's, that's been pretty proven if, if you watch NFL football on Sunday or look at the rosters. So, I, again, I don't think it's really subjective. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's proven based on the way these teams recruit, the way they play, um, and then the way they end up sending players to the NFL. Uh, hey, guys, got a TV question for you. Um, what impact do you think that the Megacast has in bringing in new viewers uh, for this event? And number two, do you think the Megacast format has the potential for other ESPN properties such as Monday Night Football? You know, it's tough. I, the Megacast is cool, but I think you're asking two of the least qualified people to talk about it because we're doing our thing. We're not really able to consume it that way. I mean, I, I know those other streams are out there. Um, I know that the folks involved because I didn't have a lot of fun. We're very much focused on the, you know, the traditional broadcast of it. So uh, I, I think obviously smart people to make the decisions feel like it's worth doing and, and maybe expanding it to other events. The, the, you know, the CFE championship game is pretty well suited for that kind of thing. Cause there's so much to talk about so many different angles to take, but I wish I knew more about it. We we just have kind of a job to do, and it, it's to keep our eye on the ball with the traditional broadcast that we do. Hey guys, I was just curious uh, from sort of film study and, and game prep, and maybe just your gut from watching these teams throughout the season. If both are averaging more than forty-five a game, are you expecting or something that could be more of an LSU Alabama type score into the forties, or, or more of what we saw from Clemson and Ohio State? I, I think there's a chance for points. I don't, I don't know if it'll get all the way up to LSU, Alabama, but the only the only asterisk I would put up there is the 15 days. You know, that that's the, the one thing when you give Dave Aranda uh, of LSU, who's got a, a confident defense right now in these last three weeks, and Brent Venables, who's, you know, obviously a really good defensive mind as well. You, know, you give him 15 days to try to put a plan together, it's, it's very different from getting – you know, six days to get it ready and, and having three or four days of practice. So I think that's the, the one wild card here. But if, if you watch these teams offensively, there's a, there's great, a great scheme, great quarterback play, great skill around the quarterbacks. And there's, there's a lot to like about the potential of, of seeing points for both teams. To me, the difference in a high scoring game and a medium scoring game is a few plays. You know, is A.J. Terrell going to get his hand on a pass and break up a touchdown? Is Burrow or Lawrence going to find a tight end open in the back of the end zone or be a little bit off on the throw? Because they're going to move the ball. I don't see any way that the ball's not moved around the field. It's just you, know, you have situations like Ohio State. They have 500 yards of offense but take three red zone field goals. I mean, I, both have the, the ability, and Clemson in particular, if you look at their playoff history, they score way outside the red zone a lot. They can do that. makes the job simple. I think it's really difficult to, to try to find a way to fit the ball in tight spaces down there in the red zone against Clemson. I, so I, to me, it's like you're going to see the ball move, whether it's a bunch of points or a medium scoring game, just depends on 
whether it's seven three or zero in the red zone. That's for me. That's the whole thing. Dabo is a master at creating the ship, at creating motivation. Sometimes even when he doesn't have to, or when something isn't there. But now Clemson is a definite underdog. Uh, the de facto LSU home game, and there just seem to be a lot of factors. Do you think that he will be able to use all of that? And uh, you know, just some of your thoughts on how on how Dabo uses these kinds of motivations to uh, you know inspire his team. You know, I think every coach, every coach in the country looks for an angle. Um, we've been doing this for, for a long time. And, and, you know, we, Chris and I used to laugh, Urban Meyer in 06, he just used to make stuff up, just throw it, throw it out on the, uh, on uh, their hotel meeting rooms and somebody would say something and, you know, they would just say, Oh, just, put it on Herb Street or ESPN or whoever, and they would just put it up. It would be a fake quote just to get his team, get his team mad. So there's been all kinds of tactics over the years, but I think in Dabo's case, you know, I, I know it's gotten tiresome for some people, but you know, I think if you put yourself in his shoes, here he is a defending champ. They have a close call. They didn't lose close call against North Carolina. After, after that, they beat everybody by an average of like 42 points. And everybody's kind of finding, trying to poke holes at their team. And I think his whole thing was, listen, it's not just this year. We're, we're like 18 and two against ranked teams over the last five years. We're, we're doing okay. And so I think if you look at it from his perspective, you could see why he was tweaked a bit. And at the end of the day, as long as you can get a bunch of 18 to 22 year old kids to feel like Nobody likes you. Everybody's disrespecting you. I, I watched the Minnesota Vikings the other day knock off the Saints, and at the end, as soon as the game was over, Kyle Rudolph catches the pass, and he's basically like, yeah, yeah what, what do you think now? What, what do you have to say about Kirk Cousins now? So these tactics are used in team sports, and it's not just in college, and it's not just Dabo. Anytime you can try to collectively create a chip on the shoulder of a team, they're going to feel backed into a corner and they're going to come out swinging to prove everybody wrong. And they've been doing it for years and years and years. And Dabo, to his credit, has found a way to try to push those buttons this year. Yeah. How do you make the most accomplished team also the hungriest team? That's hard. It's hard in any sport. It's what haunts the saving. How do you counter human nature? Um, and one way is to create a chip. 29 in a row, you're the underdogs. So it's easy for them this week. The lack of Clemson individual player awards is a big motivating thing too. I mean, the team that good has had only really Isaiah Simmons win a major award and very few nominees. There's LSU, which is an incredibly decorated team. Everybody was a clean sweep. So it's not just they don't respect you. It's they don't respect you specifically, individually. And that's a powerful motivating force too. And I think they still use that. Does it decide games? I don't know. That was as good as anybody, I think, at, at the moment in any sport, uh, pushing the bright buttons and getting his team to prepare and, and play well. So I, I wouldn't knock what he's doing. I, I get amused sometimes because I don't think anybody really disrespects Clemson's program at all. Far from it. But you use what you got, and uh, he's been very good at it. Hey, Kirk, I was just curious. How have been doing that level meaning against his offense in terms of number of DBs on the field and then trying to generate pressure on Burrow. I think it was about uh, how, how do we envision Venables creating a defense for uh, for Burrow? Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, just in terms of the number of DBs on the field and then trying to generate pressure yeah. on Burrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the whole – I can't wait to see LSU's offense trot out there for the first time because, I mean, we'll have our meetings the closer we get to kick with, with both teams, and, and typically the, the coordinators are pretty forthcoming because they know that we're not really going to talk about anything in, until the game starts. But I, I if I were – Brent Venables this year, he, he's incorporated that, that three down line look where he keeps two linebackers, Chad Smith and Skalke in, and then he brings Nolan Turner in. And if you include Isaiah Simmons as a defensive back, it's, it's almost like having six defensive backs in the game. And I, I think going back to your point, what we had talked earlier about Kevin Steele at Auburn, they, they played with seven defensive backs. And I think anything you can do to get more speed on the field, to get more guys to, to be able to defend this passing lance, uh, a lot of the shots downfield, you, you kind of need all hands on deck as far as your, your back end. That happens to be Clemson's strength. And they, they've been very clear about that all year, that they lost all those great defensive linemen to the NFL. And so they've had to rely on the back end to, to get things done for them. And how fitting that the, the final test for Clemson's defense is against um, you know, a guy having a historic year in, in Joe Burrow. So, yeah, I think I think we'll see Nolan Turner in there quite a bit, um, along with the rest of the DBs. And, and I do think they're going to have to come up with a lot of opportunities to disguise and look at a lot of different things uh, to try to create any kind of doubt or, or tr- any kind of uh, hesitation that they can create for Joe Burrow. Yeah, it's just it's a great chess match because the challenge is so significant when you got basically five playmakers on the field involved in the route a lot of the time. And he gets out, out so fast that he can negate pressure. And I, you know, it's, I, I think Brent's the ultimate guy. You know, he's coached now eight championship games against this, this offense. Um, can't wait to see how it unfolds. Now, I wanted to ask both of you uh, if you were surprised about Matt Rule from Baylor being such a hot commodity and, and hired by the Panthers, uh, despite not winning at a bigger level in college. And do you think that's a growing trend to hire college coaches in the NFL and maybe see Dabo in the NFL someday? Man, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's up to each of these guys, Kirk, as you know. Um, you know, Lincoln Riley's been rumored for three or four years that. One of these days, Jason Garrett's going to be let go, and Lincoln Riley's going in to become the next head coach of the Cowboys. And I think I don't know what went down there if he was even, even if they even approached him. But I think it's up to each individual coach. You know, what is it that gets you fired up at this stage of your career? Do you do you, uh, do you have it like like some of these guys like Chip Kelly and others? Do you have something in you that wants to to go up to the highest level? and compete against the best and not have to deal with the NCAA or whatever it is that your thing is. Um, I just don't think you can just throw a, a blanket across it and say, we're going to start to see more college coaches uh, get these opportunities because of what happened last year. And now what's happened this year. I think, I think Matt rule because in the coaching fraternity college and pro, there's just a great amount of respect for him. And the way he does his job, the way he carries himself and his style of coaching. And, you know, I think the Jets offered him a job last year. He, he wasn't he turned it down. And, you know, I, it was 
you knew that there were going to be more opportunities this year. If you turned them down this year, they would have been there next year. He just happens to be one of those guys that, that the NFL, um, you know, respects. And so I, I'm not surprised at all that, that he had those opportunities despite not winning national championships and, and kind of making that next step. I just think it was more about his style and, and um, the way he carried himself as a coach. Yeah, happy for him. Um, disappointed for Baylor. Wish he were still in college football from a selfish perspective. But as Kirk said, the offers were going to keep coming in. Defensive mindset, a real gift of the coach. Um, I think Baylor would have been very solid ground for a long time at Maddox State, but um, you know, not to be. So now I'll be watching on Sundays and, and hoping the Panthers uh, succeed with him. Obviously, I cover Michigan football, and, and it's now hitting. It's five years for for Jim Harbaugh on the book. I kind of thought they'd be in the position you guys are in right now, preparing to go cover a, a national championship game. In both your perspectives, how far do you think Michigan is from from being being there? <laughs> what was, was it, do, we, do we think they're far from from being there? Kind of getting to that next step. Is that what you were saying? The narrative around here, maybe you saw it after that Michigan-Ohio State game, is, oh, the gap is, is enormous and yeah. between Michigan yeah. and Ohio State. And, and I'm not sure it is, but I was just I was curious, you know, your impressions. And, and I don't know, are, are you a little stunned that, that Harbaugh hasn't been able to get Michigan to that, that level yet? Yeah, when, when they hired him, other than the Michigan fan base, I, I – I was elated because I was happy to see him coming back to college, happy to see him coming back to his school. Um, and I, I really thought, man, here we go. You know, him and Urban Meyer, it's like, you know, Woody and Bo round two kind of thing is what I, I envisioned. Um, you know, it, it hasn't turned out that way. Obviously Urban's gone, but Ohio State hasn't lost yet. And not only that, I think if, if we're all being honest with each other, we can talk schemes all we want, but I think I think the, the the real part that I'm sure Coach Harbaugh and his staff are looking at is they just have to continue to recruit. I mean, if Ohio State is the bar in the Big Ten and you're matching up with them, and there have been games where they've been competitive and there have been games where they've not been, and where where is Michigan falling short? You know, I – you know, I think that's a question that when they watch film, they have to be able to to look at. You know, people can say quarterback. Well, you know, I I think it's overall just across the board, the the athletic ability of Ohio State is on a right now in the Big Ten. It's at a, it's just at a different level. And I mean, when you watch Ohio State play Clemson, Ohio State they're, they're stride for stride right there, playing as good if not better. You know, and and Clemson's been winning a lot of championships lately. And so that's the bar right now for Michigan. And to me, right now, it's not necessarily about scheme. It's it's more about continuing to go out and try to get great players that can run. You know, because that I feel like that's the area that it, when they play Ohio State, they, they don't seem quite to be at the same level right now. Yeah, and for me, viewing from afar, they have a, they have a Ohio State problem between the years, too, that translates more than just uh, a gap in personnel, which, as Kurt said, is real, especially in the speed department. But the scores reflect more than that to me. And I, I do think that um, 
despite all the equity that, that Jim has in Michigan, you know, people do have higher expectations. And you look ahead to next year, and you open at Washington, get two easy games. Then their next games, the Big Ten, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Penn State, at Michigan State, at Minnesota. That's before the October, 30th October. That's a hell of a gauntlet. So it's not even going to be just about Ohio State next year. It's going to have to be winning a tough road game and then competing with those four Big Ten teams, two home, two away, to even be relevant by the time late October rolls around. And then, you know, obviously the huge problem of going to the horseshoe at the end of the year. So it, it sets up as a very interesting year. Um, I think that with every year where you fall short like this and that's just Ohio State, it's the bowl game where they hang with Alabama, but not opportunistic, and then they're pulled away from easily in the second half. Um, that the, that doesn't lie. That that happened. And um, I think it creates some, it says some urgency again for next year. There should be some external national pressure off. Nobody will pick them to the playoff, I promise you, unlike this year. Uh, so we'll see where they go. For both of you guys, if Clemson finishes this off, then it's you know, 30 straight wins, back-to-back national titles, five straight playoff appearances. What does this run mean from a national perspective and, and kind of a, from a historic perspective what they've been able to accomplish? To me, it's yeah. as great as anything we've ever seen. He's had about three out of four years. They will have beaten a 14-0 Alabama team to win their first championship, 12-0 Notre Dame team, 14-0 Bama team last year. Thirteen uh, and Ohio State team, fourteen and LSU team in the Superdome. I mean, come on. That, that's I, I know that their conference gauntlet hasn't been as demanding as others in, in history for sure. But I mean, that's just a ridiculous amount of postseason excellence, and it would put them right with anything else. You're just not supposed to be able to do that anymore. And um, I mean, to me, that's what they're playing for. Fifteen and zero was was astounding. You go back to back, and and the teams they've all had to beat. To, to keep that streak alive. Um, for me, it's just crazy. I, I don't know how many times it'll be duplicated in the history of the sport. And they got Trevor another year, by the way, so he could still build on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm with Chris. Um, you know, if you envision this game on Monday night, you know, LSU can win and, and wrap up and just a incredible season that we'll be talking about for decades. Or, or on the other hand, Clemson could win, and we'll be talking about not just an incredible run this year, but we'll be talking about three out of four, and Chris just went through the gauntlet of teams they beat. And you know, I, I think the winning streak continues, goes into 2020 season. Trevor's coming back. You look at the last five years, they had the, the, the highest winning percentage already uh, in the entire country. Um, you know, I, I think they are the I don't whoever the standard is if it's been Nick Saban in Alabama, if they win and not you can make an argument they're already there. You know they're already not right next to Alabama, and if they win this game, I think they they are the team right now. You know they are, you know they are the team that everybody wants to look at, and and that's why I think some of the reasons that that uh, you know I think he was so frustrated so much Dabo was so frustrated is 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 anybody watching my team play you know has anybody watched this these last five years just because of all the amazing things that they've accomplished so so the great thing is it's not subjective they have a chance to get the last lap and they're 60 minutes away from you know doing some things we we just haven't seen ever 
for a while, especially in the South, it seemed like everybody was trying to hire a Saban guy and, and copy the Saban blueprint. I'm wondering if you think with the success of more of the CEO guys with Orgeron and Dabo, you think the, the blueprint is going to be changing more in college football, kind of a big picture of program life? You know, I, I think it just depends on how guys come up. And, and I, I don't think there's necessarily a certain way um, guys are coaching, you know, whether it's a CEO or, or hands-on. I think it's what you learned as a coach, as an assistant, and then eventually as a coordinator, and what you're most comfortable with. You know, I mean, if, if you go to a Clemson practice, um, I don't think you would look at Dabo as, as a CEO type of coach at all. You know, I think, you know, he, he's right in the middle of everything that they do. In fact, I think most head coaches today, they can't get that, that assistant coach out of them, that coordinator out of them. Now, most of them, the successful ones, find a balance between, you know, I don't have time to be what I used to be, what got me this job. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I don't think we're heading in a, personally, I just don't think we're heading in a direction um, because there's a certain couple examples of of guys that are kind of being labeled as, as CEO versus being hands-on. I, I would second that. I'm glad Kirk mentioned that. Dabo is not a CEO. I mean, he, he handles every facet of the job uh, in a very hands-on way, but he, he's involved. He, he would bristle at that label for sure. He's very involved um, on the headsets offensively and special teams and other things too. And, yeah, you might be surprised. Coach O is right down there. Works hard with the defensive lineman. He's not obviously the offensive play caller, and he's got extremely skilled coordinators. But um, you can't get you can't get all the uh, the assistant coach out of these guys. And, and Coach O is at heart an old line coach, and is still involved in that in that aspect. Hey guys, so much talk about all the playmakers on this team, on both of these teams, and all that they do, but. What do you think is going to happen in the trenches in this game? How important? We always talk about it. it comes down to the big guys up front. What are you seeing on both sides of the ball for these two squads? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And Damian Lewis and his health, you know, obviously he was helped off the, the field against Oklahoma. There's, there's talk about him being able to go, and we, and we hope uh, that the 15 days off will, will be able to free him up. He's a such an incredible leader um, for that deep. The offensive line has been looked at as, as the top offensive line in the country. Um, so I think he's an important piece. I, I, I think that Tyler Davis will have a big role uh, in the middle, the true freshman in the middle of the Clemson defense. It'd be interesting to see because Joe Burrow, part of his success is five receivers out every route. They get the ball out fast. Um, there's just not a lot of time to get to him. So one of the ways you try to counter that is, is guys got to get their arms up and try to try to knock the ball down. But they better be able to hold up as much as you worry about Burrow in the passing game. How do they hold up against the run? You know, Clyde Edwards-Elair should be healthy and ready to roll. He's been such a big part of that offense because they are very balanced in their ability uh, to run the ball. And then, you know, I, I, I can't wait to see Dave Aranda's defense, they've been really coming in with a lot of confidence with the way they've been playing. I think they're they are healthy now. And I think that defensive line, even though they don't have a ton of playmakers, they typically eat up a lot of those offensive linemen. And then that that, that can free up their, their backers and safeties to get penetration. And that's that'll, that'll be a big part, I think, of what they try to do to try to get to Trevor Lawrence and try to slow down ETN. Um, 
as you said, anytime you get to a championship game, it's it's typically won or lost up front. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching. I mean, we we talk a lot about Clemson, the LSU interior. I mean, three Tyler Shelton's a he's just a monster. He's a hard guy to move. Uh, the nose tackle and you know, him and Lawrence and Logan, the guys up front, I think are, I do think are important for LSU. Chase on just the one guy that's the sort of the transcendent, um, you know, Sunday ready pass rush guy. But you make a good point that the guys in the middle and the depth, we saw a lot of guys rolling in there making plays for Clemson against Ohio State who are not starters and late in that game. And it, it shows you that they might lack the first rounders up front, they, they go deep and that that's important in a game like this. It, it, certainly part of the strategy is going to be to wear out LSU's big people. I mean, Clemson will make no, no secret about that. So we'll see if they can do it. Uh, Kurt, you mentioned Kevin Steele uh, coming out with that funky look, I guess the high formation yeah. defense for lack of a yeah. better term, but, can you recall a previous instance over the years when an offense has caused so many really seasoned defensive minds to try so many different things to try to slow them down? Two, uh, two years, or this past year, not, not 19, but 18, um, he was on a roll, as you know, and, and people were trying to come up with wrinkles to try to slow that offense down. But I don't know if I've ever seen anything – uh, like this, at least at the top of top of my mind, where the the, the ball gets out fast. You, you know, you, you you have five receivers on every single route, and it's full prep progression reads, which is very rare in college football. They have a quarterback that has that ability to to process coverage as quickly as he does, and go A to B to C to D to E, and if all else fails, he's athletic enough to take off and go. I mean, it's it's really um, challenging, as you know, to, to try to defend these guys. And the only way you can do it is if your defensive line can get get there. I mean, think about we're talking about Kevin Steele in that three one seven, but think about who the three were. <laughs> You're talking about Coe and Davidson, and maybe the best interior D lineman we've seen in a long time, and Derek Brown. Uh, th- th- those guys aren't on Clemson's roster, so that that three is very very unique to and specific to that team. And I think that allowed him to be able to play that defense and get away with it because he could still get some penetration and still be able to get some pressure just because those guys are so special. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, I can't recall um, every week somebody thinking, I mean, think of the defensive minds that they went through and made look silly week after week after week. Um, so one last test for him, and it's it's Clemson, the defending champs, and Brent Venables. Couldn't say well. I mean, the, we, we talk to opponents. Every coordinator goes in hoping to have a plan. A lot of them know very early on the plan ain't going to work um, because Burrow is so good, and the scheme is so good, and the playmakers are so good, and the whole package is there. So um, you go with a plan, and you hope good enough players, but, but uh, they, they tend to shatter most plans. Oh,